Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. In C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia, there is kind of a famous quote where he is introducing the main character of the story, Aslan, who happens to be the king of Narnia, who's represented as a lion, and he's introducing Aslan to Lucy, one of the main characters in the story, who's having a conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and Lucy asks this question. He says, is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He is the king. And most of you know from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia that Aslan represents Jesus. And Jesus is oh so very good, but he isn't safe. In fact, I think you could say he's quite dangerous. And it's dangerous to follow him, to call him your Lord and your Savior, and to be obedient to what he calls you to do. You know, as we are in the middle of Exodus, we are at Mount Sinai with the Israelites. We've been studying the book of Exodus for a while now. And really, uh, they end up spending almost a full year at Mount Sinai. And we arrive there in Exodus chapter 19, and we remain there for the entire rest of the book of Exodus. Mount Sinai, this holy mountain of God where some very significant things take place, is the setting for the rest of the book of Exodus. And there are two very significant worship experiences that God's people have at Mount Sinai. And while we kind of enter into those experiences with them, we will see these two things. We'll see that our God and our Lord is oh so very good, beautifully good. Yet at the same time, we're also going to see that he is very unsafe. He's dangerous. And so I want us just to kind of reflect. We're going to focus today on Exodus chapter 24. But to do that, I'd like to kind of go back and see the first worship service. Exodus 24 is the second worship service on the mountain. But Exodus 19 really kind of... uh, gives us the beginning, the first service. 
And you might remember in Exodus 19, God has Moses make his first ascent up Mount Sinai. And we're going to find out that Moses makes as many as eight ascents up and down the mountain, uh, starting in Exodus chapter 19. And on his very first ascent, God speaks to him on the mountain, and he tells them that the Israelites are going to be his treasured possession. They're going to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. What an extraordinary privilege that he was giving to them. And by the way, you and I who are New Testament believers need to know that all of these things have been transferred to us, the people of God today. We are his treasured possession. We are a holy people, a royal nation. We are a kingdom of priests. Powerful, beautiful, what a privilege. So God makes that known to Moses, and then Moses is told to go back down the mountain and gather the people at the base of the mountain for a worship encounter with their holy God. And so that's what happens. You might remember the the scene that's described in great detail in Exodus 19. The people gather at the base of Mount Sinai, And uh, it's really, you have to remember, this is not just a few thousand people. It's really a few million people. How do we get that number? Well, the Bible tells us that they actually counted the Israelites or the Israelite soldiers. And the number they came up with was 600,000 men of fighting age. So if you extrapolate that and add women and children, you would have at least 2 million people that were participating in the Exodus. So these two million people are now living in a very rugged, barren desert, and they come to this desert mountain called Mount Sinai where they meet God in this worship encounter. So there's millions of people gathered at the base of the mountain. See if you can just picture that in your mind. And then they begin to see the mountain. Exodus 19 tells us that there were rumbles of thunder, peals of thunder constantly going on around the mountain. Rumbles of thunder. Then there were flashes of lightning. I kind of get the impression it was kind of like one of those storms where the lightning is just constantly going uh, off, flashing, kind of like a strobe light. And then they began to feel the, the ground beneath them shake as we have what undoubtedly were earthquakes. The ground was trembling. The mountain itself was shaking. And then we, we read about the fact that the mountain of God, where the presence of God was, the cloud, remember, God led his people in the Exodus, a cloud by day, they could see his presence, and then a pillar of fire at night. Well, those two actually come together on the mountain, and the mountain literally catches fire. And they're seeing the smoke billow off the top of the mountain like it was a a chimney. And all of this is happening. And then there's this heavenly trumpet blast that seems to be repeatedly going on and on and on. And it gets louder and louder and louder. Can you imagine the scene? It had to be absolutely thrilling, exciting, exhilarating, and terrifying all at the same time. 
That's what happens in Exodus 19. And then Moses ends up speaking to God and then God answers him in the midst of these people, the Israelites. They hear God's voice. And what does God say? Well, he gives to them the Ten Commandments. That's what God speaks verbally to the people himself. And again, we see through what's happening, we see the goodness of God, but we also see that God is so, so very unsafe. In fact, he warns the people time and time again, all the way through Exodus 19 and 24, do not come up this mountain unless you're invited. Why? Because it is dangerous. And if you do, you will die. And that's the scene we find in Exodus 19 and 20. In fact, it gets summarized pretty well after God gives the Ten Commandments. Listen to what the people say to Moses. They say in, in, in Exodus 20, it says, When the people saw the thunder and the lightning, and they heard the trumpet, and they saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself. And we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that you will fear God. And the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. So you see once again, God in his glorious goodness on display, but also God who is not safe. And they were afraid, rightfully so. And so God then goes up the mountain and he communes, or Moses goes up the mountain and he communes with God once again. And what does God say to him this time? God then begins to give him some very specific laws we often call this next section the covenantal law. And it's referred to on several occasions in Scripture. The covenantal law. No doubt it included the Ten Commandments, but then it was all the things built around the Ten Commandments that we've read about in Exodus 21 through 23. And so then we come to Exodus chapter 24, where God then has Moses come back to the people and share with them what he has told them. And that's what we're gonna read about in Exodus 24. It's another worship experience back at Mount Sinai after Moses has come down from the mountain and he is ready to gather the people. Let's pick up in verse one of chapter 24. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You're to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. So now the Lord is inviting Moses to return to the mountain, and he's able to bring with him his brother, Aaron, who eventually is going to become the first high priest, and then Aaron's two oldest sons are invited as well, Nadab and Abihu. You might remember these guys. They're made famous because they become priests. 
And in Leviticus chapter 10, we have another terrifying story where they actually disobey God. The Bible simply says they offered unauthorized fire on the altar. And guess what happens? Nadab and Abihu die. That's what happens when you are following a good but dangerous God. You need to pay close attention to his instructions. But here they are with him and they're allowed to come up on the mountain, but they have to keep a distance from Moses. And the people were not allowed. They were forbidden to even touch the mountain. Verse three says, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, that's what he was given. That's the covenantal law that we've read about in Exodus chapters 21 through 23. He went back and he told the people the the Lord's words and laws. And look how they responded. They responded with one voice at the end of verse three, everything the Lord has said we will do. And then Moses wrote down everything the Lord had said. So he puts it in writing. So what we're seeing in this second worship service at Mount Sinai in chapter 24, this second worship service is going to be a covenant where they're ratifying the covenant of God. God has told them what he wants to do for them. You're gonna be my treasured possession. You're gonna be a royal nation, a holy nation. And you're gonna be a kingdom of priests. And then their part was to understand the covenant, the law, and then commit to obedience. And that's exactly what they do. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Then he got up early, Moses got up early the next morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and he set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. And then Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it to the people. And again, they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. So now they're gonna have this worship ceremony. 12 altars are built, one for each of the tribes of Israel at the base of the mountain. And then the young men are told to take and slaughter these bulls, these calves, these cattle. And then they're to take the blood and take half of it and spread it around the altar where the bulls are going to be burnt up as as an an offering, a sacrificial offering to God. And then we're going to see that Moses, after this, he then reads the entire covenantal law to the people. Exodus chapters 21 through 23. He reads it to the people. And then they respond once again, we will obey. And then, verse 8, Moses took the blood, the other half of the blood, and he began to sprinkle it on the people. Now, this is quite the task. Think about this once again. Two million plus people gathered to have the blood sprinkled. And no doubt, Moses and God wanted every single person to have the blood sprinkled upon them because of its significance, what it was going to do, the cleansing that it would provide, the cleansing from sin. That's what it was about. 
Think about this for a minute. Even if Moses and the others with him, the 70 elders and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu were allowed to help him sprinkle this blood on the people, you, you take 2 million people, that's the low count, and divide it by 74 people, that's 27,000 people apiece to sprinkle blood upon. That would be like one of us taking half of War Memorial Stadium that's packed full of people and sprinkling blood on each one of them. This was a, an enormous task, but a, an enormously important task that everybody received the blood. And then it says in verse Nine, that Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like pavement made of lapis and lazuli, as bright as the sky and as blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. This is an extraordinary passage of scripture. We know from other places in Exodus that we're told that if a person sees God, even if Moses was able to see God fully, see his face, he would not be able to live. So what's going on here? They get to see God. Well, it tells us really they see kind of a form of God. They really get to see his feet. And it was overwhelmingly beautiful what they were able to see. And God allowed it. He did not raise his hand against these leaders. And they even had a fellowship meal with God, a sacred meal with him on the mountain. And then the Lord said to Moses in verse 12, come up with me on the mountain and stay here. And I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments I have written for their instructions. So here we see, and Exodus 31 tells us even more details, that God literally writes out, inscribes the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets with his own fingers. They receive the word of God, the law, directly from God in written form. And it's given to Moses. And then, verse 13, Moses set out with Joshua his aide. We've met Joshua in Exodus 17. You might remember the battle that they had to fight against the Amalekites who attacked them in the desert. And Joshua was the military commander who led the people in victory. And so now Joshua is described as his aide. Later, we're going to see that Joshua actually becomes Moses' successor and leads the people into the promised land after Moses dies. So Joshua's with him. And they go up on the mountain of God, that's Mount Sinai. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. So Aaron, Moses' brother, and now we meet her, two leaders are kind of in charge while Moses is gonna go up to the mountain. And we find out in just a moment, he's going to spend some extended time on the mountain, over a month with the Lord. And so, unfortunately, if you read ahead, you're going to find out that Aaron and Hur did not do such a good job. And we'll read about a rebellion that ends up taking place, but that's another sermon for another time. 
Verse 15, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud, and then to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked, listen to this, looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. That's not a tame God, is it? That's not a safe God. And God is described as a consuming fire frequently in the Old Testament. We see it on six other occasions where this term, God is a consuming fire, is mentioned. It's mentioned first here, later in Deuteronomy. David talks about it in Samuel. He writes a a psalm about it in Psalm 18. And then we see Isaiah mentioning this term and describing God in this way on several occasions, the great prophet Isaiah. And then it shows up one time in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12, where the author of Hebrews is looking back at this event where God met his people on the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, a consuming fire. And then Moses entered the cloud and he went up on the mountain. He stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Well, what do we learn about our God? Our good God, our dangerous God from this story. I think there are several key things. First of all, we understand that our good God desires the worship of his people. Our good God deserves the worship of his people. And that worship certainly includes what we're doing here today, gathering as a church family, singing praises to God, offering prayers to God, opening the word of God, listening to the word of God. Soon you'll be going to Bible studies where you're fellowshipping with the people of God and you're studying the word again. All of that is vitally important and it's included in this idea of worship. And we see certainly Exodus 24 verse 1 makes it very, very clear that this is a worship ceremony that we're talking about. Nadab Aaron, Moses, and Abihu, and the 70 elders, it says, you're to worship me on this mountain. God loves the worship of his people. He deserves the worship of his people. But we also see another thing. Our good God gives his word to teach us and to guide us. Think about how often we have references to God's word in this story. Verse three, it says, that Moses then spoke the word of God to the people, the words and the laws, spoke them. Later in verse four, it says, Moses wrote down the word of God and the laws of God. Later in chapter seven, it says, then he said he read the book of the covenant that he had written down. He read it to them so that they would fully understand. Later, we see that God directly speaks part of his word to the people. So the word of God is absolutely essential. Our good God gives his gracious word to us to teach us and to guide us. You get to the New Testament and we see that very, very clearly. One of the greatest passages in the Bible 
about the Bible comes to us from Paul's words in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where he says the, the word of God or the Bible, God's word is God-breathed, and it's profitable for at least four specific things, for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man or woman of God will be thoroughly equipped to do the work of God. God's word is essential, and our good God gives his word to teach us and to guide us. And we see that here in Exodus and throughout the rest of Scripture. We also find out that our good God provides redemption from sin by his blood. It's real easy for us to see this ceremony in Exodus 24 and then understand that it's foreshadowing of an even greater sacrifice that's gonna happen. Where our Lord Jesus Christ is gonna shed his blood. He's gonna be the sacrificial lamb of God for our sins so that we can be cleansed from our sin, so that his blood will be sprinkled upon each and every one of us who put our faith in him. A hugely significant event that results in redemption, forgiveness of our sins and a chance to have a relationship with the holy God. And that's really what's next. Our good God desires a personal relationship with his people. We see that extraordinary privilege up on the mountain where these 70 elders with Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and they're literally able to visit and commune with God and have a fellowship meal with God on the mountain. Our God is a personal God. He's so good and he's so loving and so forgiving, so beautiful that he cleanses us from sin in order to have a relationship with us. And the only way we can have a personal relationship with the holy God is by the blood of the lamb. But praise God, we have the blood of the lamb. And then finally, our good God is a dangerous God who is like a consuming fire. When we think about God as a dangerous God, in a consuming fire, we need to be thinking about his holiness. The fact that he is completely set apart from all other beings. When you think about God being a consuming fire, you think about a, 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 the glory that emanates from God. The radiant splendor that emanates from our good God. But we also need to think about what we've talked about last week, and that is that our God is a just God who will rightly and justly judge sin. He is a judging God. And so when you hear that term, it really captures all of those things. He's holy, he's glorious, but he is also a just judge. And no one can approach him apart from the blood. Our God is a dangerous God who is like a consuming fire. What does this have to do with us? I think it's important for us as we read their experience and we read the story of what happened at Mount Sinai and we think about how it interprets into our world today, into our reality, new covenant believers, 
We need to understand that God is oh so beautifully good, but he is also very dangerous. It's a consuming fire. And we need to approach him reverently, lovingly, carefully. You know, the good news is we can have a relationship with him through faith. That relationship, it's kind of a process of relating to a good and dangerous God. It starts with faith, belief in him. And then that faith involves repentance of sin, which leads to forgiveness. And then our good God allows us by being forgiven to have a relationship with him. And then our relationship with him translates into gratitude and thanksgiving which leads to worship of him, which leads to obedience, which requires courage. I think we often like to think of God in partial terms. We think of God often as our good friend. And uh, we like to Think of him as the one who's going to take care of us, going to provide our basic needs, or even in some respects, we can ask him for things we want. And in his goodness, he's going to give us those things. And all of that's true. He is our friend. He is unbelievably gracious about big and small things, significant and insignificant things but he's oh so much more than that. And we have to remember to stand in awe of him and in reverence of him and even in a reverent fear of him. We also need to understand that we so often play it safe as followers of Christ. And if we're serving a good God who is an unsafe God, we're not being obedient if we play it safe. What do I mean by playing it safe? Well, the Bible tells us repeatedly that as his ambassadors, we need to boldly live for him, to boldly witness for him, to boldly serve him in his kingdom work. And boldness is not going to translate super well with our world, especially an unbelieving world. It's going to be dangerous to step out boldly for God. It's going to cause you at times to get way outside of your comfort zone. And it's going to cause you to be rejected at times and even persecuted. That's part of what Scripture tells us. Jesus himself said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Just understand that's part and parcel of the deal, the calling. We also need to know that we have to be obedient to the Holy Spirit who is going to boldly lead us. And sometimes he's actually going to lead us into harm's way. This is not the prosperity gospel, is it? You read the word of God and you see that God will often put his own people, his faithful people in harm's way. That's not safe. 
He's going to put you in a path of danger. Why? So that you can boldly witness and serve him to a hostile world that desperately needs him, that's desperately lost. Think about missions. Think about what Paul and the missionary teams did. Was that safe? Absolutely not. None of it was safe. But they were being absolutely faithful to what God was calling them to do. They were being obedient. You see, I think when the Israelites in Exodus were making that pledge, yes, Lord, we hear your word. Yes, Lord, we will obey your word. They really didn't fully understand what they were saying because they couldn't live up to it and did not live up to it. Do you understand what you're saying? Do we understand what we're saying when we tell God, yes, we will boldly follow you wherever you lead? You know, we often see this as parents or grandparents. Are you bold enough, courageous enough to give your children and your grandchildren to the Lord? I mean, really give them to the Lord? And let him do what he wants to do in their lives. Lead them where he wants to take them. Because if you are willing to surrender, you need to know he may and very possibly will put them in harm's way for his glory. And that's just part of it. When you and I follow a good God, we're also following a dangerous God. Will we follow him faithfully? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 11.15. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org. 